Welcome to Therapists Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Hi, welcome back to Therapists Uncensored. This is episode 32, and today we have a terrific guest. Her name is Dr. Tina Atkins, and she is a research associate at the University of Texas at Austin here at the School of Social Work. We are excited to have her because she has been specializing in attachment-based interventions throughout her career. She uh, received her PhD in theoretical psychoanalysis under Peter Fonagy and Patrick Luton from the University of College at London and the Anna Freud Center. She has um, developed an amazing amount of expertise that is going to help guide our listeners into our ever-going pursuit of understanding attachment and how to develop the most secure attachment in ourselves and in others. We today are going to talk about the idea of mentalizing. And mentalizing, as she will discuss in much detail, is one example of a way that we can actually find to impact the way we ourselves and our kids can develop stronger skills in how to feel safer in the world right now, not with years of therapeutic and clinical intervention, but with short strategies for how to intervene and how we relate to ourselves and to those we love. So stay tuned. I think you're really going to get a lot out of this episode. We are very excited today to have a very special guest with us who's going to take us right into the heart of the research on attachment. So if you haven't heard about metacognition and reflective function and mentalization, mentalization <laughs> you're going to be an expert by the end of this episode. So can you get us started, Tina? Can you actually first tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. I'm very happy to be here. I'm Tina Adkins. I am started my career, uh, much like Sue, as a social worker. So I was um, a CPS worker working with, uh, you know, very traumatized families. Um, so I didn't know we were both, we were both CPS yes, workers. I just saw that recently on your thing, on yeah. your, I don't know where that was posted. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that either. Yeah. I was a CPS worker and investigator. I was also in foster care. I did a bunch of things related to that. And I didn't expect to go in that arena. I had a psychology degree, which, you know, you can do so much with these days. <laughs> so I ended up there. Drive a bus. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, not sure what my path was. So I feel now very fortunate that I fell into that path because now my entire career has been in the field of child welfare. So I started out as a worker, went back and got a counseling degree, worked in the field a little bit there, but was really interested in research and changing the system on a larger scale. So I went and got some uh, research experience and then eventually found out about the program in London on that they specialized in um, attachment and sort of... Um, cutting edge interventions for foster and adoptive families that nobody was doing in Texas for sure. And not many knew about in the U S. And so I went to take advantage of that uh, degree program that and eventually so got exciting. a PhD in that arena as well from London and just finished that a couple of years ago. So yes. what, uh, like if we just get started at the very basic, so just while you're listening, just know that part of why we brought Tina on the show today is that she has got some real data and her experience is uh, evidence-based. Mm -hmm. And so we're not just, these aren't just somebody's good ideas. And where they are somebody's just good ideas, we'll tell you the difference between that and what we actually know. 
But let's just start with a bigger framework in case somebody hasn't heard more about Therapist Uncensored and been listening and following along about attachment. Sure. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Why'd you go all the way to London? Right. Right. Yes. Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that I realized was that I was working with, you know, many of these sort of dysfunctional families or children that are being abused or neglected. And so if you go back to the basic question of, you know, why are these parents treating their children so horribly, or even just, you know, not great spanking, things like that, things that I didn't like to see. Um, And I knew from working with these parents that they themselves had been traumatized. They had a background that nobody was addressing. Nobody was talking about the intergenerational transmission of trauma or any of these things yet. And so already I knew that this was a parent who was also had been a child and they had experienced their oh, own I love that. Yeah. history mm-hmm. that nobody was addressing, you know, and now they are parenting their own child, not just how they were parented, but through the eyes of perhaps a damaged child, you know, their own inner damaged child. So already I knew that, that things weren't being addressed and I knew attachment was important in, in the, in the sense of, I learned a little bit about it in the classroom, uh, knowing that, if you had been securely attached as a baby, that your outcomes in life were much better. You had um, higher IQ, you had improved mental health, you were able to make relationships and have successful jobs. And so I'm like, what is this magic secure attachment? It's like an elixir. It's elixir, (laughs) but it's measured at 12 months. So I'm like, well, we have all these kids in and they're older. So what do we do then? So there's a lot of questions about that. Like, does, I just, I didn't know. And I wanted to know a lot more. And so going to the source, you know, John Bowlby studied, in, you know, he was in London. And so going to the Anna Freud Center, which is definitely an international center that studies attachment and, and child welfare and families was so helpful for me. I learned things I just had no clue about. And it just took me on a deep, deep level of understanding attachment and families and, and all these things. So on the most basic level, that's what it is, is that they, they've shown, research has shown that when a child has a safe, loving connection, basically the idea of a secure attachment is that it provides safety, comfort, and pleasure. Those are the three things that secure attachment provides in the most basic sense between parent and child. Safety, comfort, and, and pleasure. pleasure. Those nice. three different kinds of pillars, right? But those, mm-hmm. those three elements uh, sort of are... The, the hallmark of a securely attached child and parent. Um, what I like to tell people is that this is something that follows you throughout your life. All your best relationships you find in life. If you look at your relationships right now and reflect on perhaps that's how you chose your spouse, they provide safety, comfort, and pleasure for you. If one of those is missing, then there's you know typical issues. But anyway, so following that path out, there you know, outside of secure on the opposite of that spectrum is insecure, right? There's this, okay, well, what if something's missing? What if a parent is not providing this or a child is insecurely attached? And there's a lot of details underlying that, but the basic is, is that that child does not feel safe. They certainly aren't always feeling comforted or there's no pleasure. There's a lot of other factors in there, but from a research perspective, if you are, if you, if I measure an infant at 12 months old and they are insecurely attached to their parent and you just follow that child and parent through the rest till they're 18 and do nothing else, no intervention, nothing, then that child has a much higher chance of having mental health issues, of 
having drug health, and alcohol even issues, health, health issues. physical health issues. And they were able to trace it back to 12 months old having insecure attachment. It's and one of the really cool things I remember hearing about is that you can predict a child's attachment status by the attachment status of the parent before the child is born. Yes. Isn't that crazy? That's the research they did at the Anna Freud Center. They showed, they interviewed pregnant mothers, right? They gave them the adult attachment interview. And they found that if they gave them a sort of equal, if they gave them a designation of like an insecure, it's not the term, but insecurely attached adult they, they would predict at 12 months their infant would be insecurely attached. In the same it, way that they Yes, are. they were. And that at 18 years, that child had poor outcomes compared to secure. All from an interview with a pregnant mother. So before she even has a child, they could essentially predict how that child would have or their mental health issues or anything like that at 18 years old. Shocking to me. Powerful. And this isn't genetics. No, this so. is outside of genetics. They controlled for... Uh, poverty and and mental health issues and all kinds of other things. And that what that showed me or what one element of that that became very powerful for me in in deciding how to, you know, uh, create interventions or research was that the relationship was one of the key factors of how we become healthy in this world, the relationship with your primary caregiver, the actual relationship. So in her mind, as a, this pregnant mother being interviewed, had already an internal model of relationships. And that's how she was presenting um, her answers. And that's how she was uh, uh, fantasizing her child and all of these things. That was the most important factor more than anything else. That, and, it's, and they measure it through the narrative style. Mm-hmm. It's not, and, and you all uh, ongoing listeners know about this, but it's not what has happened to us, but with the, the sense that we've made of it. And it's not what the mother was saying. It's how, in a sense, it's how she's speaking and, and um, how she comes to make sense of it. But just as a quick little asterisk, also what's interesting is that, you know, as we go forward in the research, um, it's not true that every parent that scores that way has this. And it's also not true that if your child score, you know, has early developmental issues that they always will. So one of the things Tina said that I think is really important is that that's without any intervention, without knowing anything. And, and there's a lot of, uh, so it's, it's not a perfect correlation, but because it's, it's, it's so robust so that I just know that as a parent, as I began to listen and read about this stuff, I got so paranoid. Oh, I know. Tremendously paranoid. One of the first things I tell parents is look, it, it just to ease your mind, it doesn't matter what happened to you as a child. You could have had the worst upbringing in the world. It's how you process it now. It's how, which to me is very hopeful. It's not about what happened to you. It's about how you've dealt with it now. Have you been able to process it? Have you been able to, you know, like you said, how do you talk about it? How do you feel about it? Think about it. And that can be changed at any time in life. Well, that's where, that is exactly. So we're going to narrow in on a specific thing. One, uh, so one, Tina, uh, can you talk to us about the general concept and then also yeah, just can we just start? I guess of there like reflective functioning. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So this is this is one piece of it that there that the data shows really is a powerful influencer on uh, both creating insecurity when it's not there, but also promoting security when it's yes, present. Yes. So one of the things they were researching at the Anna Freud Center and in London was this idea of okay, great, we know that secure mothers sort of create secure babies or or, or influence secure babies, but how? 
what are they doing? Right. Maybe they're just very nice. Yeah. Are they just sweet? <laughs> are they loving? And they, there was an original term called sensitive parenting. Maybe That's they're right. super sensitive. But when they really studied it, that wasn't explaining the, the variation. And another cool thing I heard just as an aside that it really helps bring, because I thought secure secure kid like secure people that that's like bigfoot like is it really I, out there really exists, yeah. <laughs> but it really does and people talked about like a mother that had even 10 kids and uh not a lot of resources can produce 10 secure children yes just naturally it's almost like the natural thing that would happen if you've already had these the benefit of it happening to you yes you have that's and so that's sort of what we're where we're narrowing in on is this idea of what is the factor and and Peter Fonagy and his team in London came up with this idea of um, uh, parents seem to talk to their children and talk about themselves in a specific kind of way, which shows they have a high ability at something called reflective functioning. Uh, that is sort of the research term. Uh, the concept, really, the overarching concept is called mentalization. They have these great abilities, mentalizing skills. That's a very odd term, mentalization. You don't hear about it much. Um, but the, what it really means is that I'm able to um, see inside the mind of another person. I'm curious about their thoughts and their feelings and their beliefs and their expectations. I'm thinking about their experience inside of their world. And at the same time, I'm thinking about my experience. So I am paying attention to what's inside your mind Meanwhile, I'm paying attention to my reactions, my thoughts, my feelings. So it's almost like a dynamic situation. It's not just empathy. Yeah, well, that, that's a complex thing to do. You know, when you get upset, you're just really kind of want yeah. to be just focused on your upset. You can't. That's the problem, right? It's the idea is in ideal interaction is I'm paying attention to what's in your mind while I'm paying attention to what's in my mind. There's a, a wonderful phrase that uh, Fani uses called um, basically I see myself um, from the outside and my child from the inside. So mm, you're able to beautiful. kind of do that at the same time, which I think is really lovely. Uh, but there's two, There's this idea, though, that it's a cognitive element, right? I'm actually able to think about what you're feeling and think about all those things. But I'm also there's an emotional regulation element, just like you said. So when I'm really pissed off or angry it shuts down your ability to mentalize. It's very difficult to see inside somebody else's mind if you are angry at them or that they're if they feel threatening to you. And that's normal. We don't mentalize 100% of the time, but we all seem to have an ability to mentalize somewhat. And what the research showed when they really narrowed it down was that parents that were had secure attachment and had children who were securely attached were had this very high ability to mentalize consistently. And that that was a real, and that's been shown consistently now through the research to be a pretty powerful element of a parent who can, can transmit this to their child. And then they found that children, that's how children develop the ability to mentalize. They have to be mentalized by another caregiver. An adult has to do this with them for them to develop this ability. And since it is related to attachment and things like that, I mean, um, sorry, uh, empathy and things like that, that's why sometimes you see children who have histories of trauma and insecure attachment aren't always sensitive to other children, right? That you talk about the lack of empathy to other children because empathy is a component of mentalization, but it's also a cognitive skill, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. my thought was, hey, 
I work with a lot of older children. I'm not working with a lot of babies necessarily. I'm working with older children in foster care, foster parents trying to manage the relationship and the behavior with these children. It's kind of all a mess sometimes. Can we actually develop this skill in parents and will this transmit to children? And is this something we can do outside of the therapy room? And that was really the big thing for me because I work with a lot. When I was working in the foster care arena, and I still do in the foster uh, family arena in Texas, there's limited resources for foster families. Uh, the children can sometimes have individual therapy, but this is a relational skill and this is a relational issue. So it's something that has to happen between parent and child. So for those of you who follow Dan Siegel and the IPNB, um, Tina Bryson, mm-hmm. uh, interpersonal neurobiology, the term that they use is mindsight. Yes. Uh, but it's a very, I think it's an interchangeable, it's the same idea it of is. being able to get in someone else's mind and and hold on to yourself at the same time. Some of us are really great at merging and being able to know, be very sensitive and know what other people are feeling, but we lose ourselves. And then other folks can be um, kind of consumed with uh, you know, down-regulating and keeping uh, people out in order to stay calm. And, you know, one of the things that, um, like when we look at folks that, like part of why that this is difficult in our adult life and where we see it happening with couples and things like that is that it's actually a good idea if you're a child and your parent isn't mentalizing and they're giving you a lot of anger or aggression or blaming you or not understanding you for you to shut down those capacities, whatever capacities that are already there is actually a healthy, secure, protective, it's a protective, that's right. It's an adaptation. Yeah. And so kind of getting that to turn back on or developing it to begin with sounds like it's part of your interest. Yeah. This idea was that, okay, I know that parents, foster parents in particular, adoptive families struggle with developing these new relationships with these children. And we know from the research that a lot, there's not a lot of research done about foster children or foster parents, but that foster children come into care with a higher rate of insecure attachment than, and that which makes sense, right? They come from a history of trauma, of course. So they're already coming in with an internal model of relationships is unsafe and all these things, right? And then we don't know much about foster parents at all, at all. But what little research has been done out there, in particular by Mary Dozier, has shown that perhaps foster parents have a higher rate of insecure attachment, but we don't really know. So I don't really know where these parents are in their adult attachment status or anything like that. But I know if this is if mentalizing is a skill that increases the chances of developing a securely attached relationship, you can't go wrong with trying to increase the skill level of parents that are working with traumatized children and see if we can increase their ability their ability to have reflective functioning and to transmit that to a foster child. So that's kind of where that idea was born was okay, I had been taking clinical classes in mentalizing-based therapy that comes out of London, mentalizing-based treatment for families and adolescents. And I realized that a core component of that therapy is psychoeducation because you kind of have to explain why it matters for parents to have buy-in, right? It's even in therapy. Why should we even care about this stuff? Why should we learn about this stuff? So 
once I realized that and I realized, ah, I'm working in Texas with foster parents who have no access to their own therapy or therapy like that with their child, but they are required to have a certain number of training hours every year. So that's when sort of the light bulb came on and I was like, can I create a true psychoeducation training, not just information. I'm not just shoving information at them, but I'm giving them a training where we are talking and we're going a little deeper. We are going deeper into the world of looking at yourself and your child and the relationship and practicing mentalizing skills, increasing actual skills in being able to communicate with your child. So can you give us an example of like what a mentalizing skill might look like? Um, yeah. Or, or some of the practice. Sure. So for instance, um, and it's, it sounds really simple. And this is why I always say that everybody sort of have these abilities. It's about pulling out and using them in the right moment. So, uh, an example of an exercise, it might be, um, that, um, you imagine that you, we have a scenario on the, uh, where I'm explaining where I'm saying, Hey, imagine that you are, um, you're, you have a new partner in your life and you're dating them. You've only been out with them a few times and you're really, uh, you're really into them, but it's not quite serious yet. Okay. And one weekend you're out with your friends and you're at a restaurant and you see that person with somebody else and it looks like they're having an intimate dinner. So the first thing I ask you to, to think about, and you could think about this right now as you're listening to this is what's your first gut reaction? What's your feeling? What's your, are you mad? Are you suspicious? Are you curious? Are you like, I don't know what's going on. So the first thing is the self-reflection of mentalizing your own gut reactions to that scene. And when you're in a classroom and when you're talking about this with a variety of people, what you start to realize is everybody has a different response. There is no one response. Some parents are instantly angry at this scene. They are mad. They are furious. Some are like, I don't really know yet what's happening. Already you see that our, we are thinking or already making up an idea of what's happening between this person we care about and a stranger. And we're either getting defensive and angry about it, we, we have the worst case scenario in our head, or we have a different idea of what's happening. So that's the first thing. And then we talk about, for instance, okay, what would you then do? What would be your next step? And then you get all kinds. If you think about it, what would you do? Would you go up? Would you confront? Would you leave? Would you sit there? Would you think about it? So many variety of responses. And then there's this idea of where do those come from? You know, and then we can talk about internal working models of relationships and how it relates to the way you were parented and all kinds of things. But in the end, our ideas, our ability to mentalize the situation and be open and flexible and curious about all the different capacities of or all the different ideas of what could be happening in this scene will determine what we actually do. So for instance, the parent or the person who's listening and says, Oh, I would immediately go up and confront them, I'm mad. What we discover in this scenario is that this partner of yours is actually meeting with their sibling that they hadn't seen in a long time who came out of town last minute. So here they are having a lovely, intimate little dinner. And you have perhaps now just ruined the relationship by going up and being a little crazy, <laughs> you know, as they like to say, right? It's like, so your 
your ability to to stay open and curious and flexible and truly mentalize the situation in terms of keeping an open mind, essentially, and being able to control and emotionally regulate yourself and your behavior is what dictates how successful your relationships will be in this world. Let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsor. For those listeners out there that are therapists, most of us want to spend our time with our clients and not with the tedious paperwork and billing, scheduling, etc. Theranest provides practice management software that can really help and has helped thousands of therapists out there better manage and grow their practices. Now they've set up a special offer just for our listeners. You can try Theranest for free and then receive 20% off your first three months if you sign up at theranest.com slash therapist uncensored or go to our website and you can click on it from there. Thanks. I love that example. I was just totally putting myself in it. It's great. <laughs> you say something that uh, uh, even the intervent, even just that example, uh, what's implied in it is even just hearing everybody else having a different reaction. Yes. You come to understand that your personal reaction is simply that and it's and that you're having beliefs. And so even the difference between this is actually happening, that cheater, to, oh, I, I'm thinking that he's or she is a cheater, um, like just that movement. That's alone, a leap. That's, that's a, a that's yeah. a big leap. That I'm having beliefs and that I'm having reactions versus when we are in it, sometimes that's gone, mm-hmm. and and it's all very just concrete and literal. So just just being just the idea that different people could have the same stimulus and have different reactions is a beautiful just beginning example of mentalization, right? Yeah, it's just allowing, you know, and so the idea of a somebody who's a successful mentalizer, somebody who has these uh, high ability, uh, leaves that space to be able to think about their feelings, to feel, you know, um, to actually feel, to take a moment and process what's happening, to keep an open mind about what's happening, which can be a very difficult thing to do if you're if you're triggered if you have a history of trauma if you've had you know all, you can imagine that everybody has a different reaction uh and it's it's fascinating to me to hear them all and and opening the minds of saying that the minute we we make it super personal without really what's the only way to really know what's happening here the only way is to literally have a conversation with that person in an open and flexible way to find out what's really going on um, if you run in and attack, if you run in and confront, shuts them down, shuts you down. And and I use this as an example because it's a, it's, it's very relatable and it's sort of non-triggering in many ways because it's just a general uh, situation. But it happens every day with between parents and kids. Right. You know, parents will be triggered by their kids. Kids will. Um, I hear parents all the time. My friends, even not even just foster parents, who are just like. He's really just trying to get back at me, you know, which could be true, could not be true. But once you decide, you know, exactly what they're doing or what's inside their head without actually talking about it, then you shut down your mentalizing, actually. So, well, in some ways, this is very challenging what you're talking about. It sounds simple on one level, I know, but you have to move from knowing. Which is a very comfortable place to be. (laughs) My righteous indignation is... That's right. I know my kids. (laughs) Exactly. And it's just unexamined, but it feels really good to be in it. (laughs) And you have to give that up and move back to a place of not knowing, which is actually a much more... You know, we've talked on this podcast a lot about the biology of this and the science related to the neurobiology. So that's really literally moving into a different area of the brain uh, moving up, so from a uh, limbic response 
to more mm. of a prefrontal cortex response, where right. that now you're able to reflect on the uh, your heart rate and your the blood coursing through your body, and you we've talked about it before as like a crow's nest on a boat, you know what I mean, where the guy goes up and he has uh, binoculars and he can <laughs> land, oh, he can kind of see what's going on. Mm-hmm. We can't necessarily stop it, but we can begin to reflect on it. And that in and of itself, it changes neurologically where it's coming from. Um, but it's, it, we, what I really like to think about is it is giving up something because to not be yes. reflective is feels really good. <laughs> it's true. It's like control. It's uh, security in some ways emotionally. That's terrible. Yeah. But it's, you know, uh, yeah. it, you know, we're brittle. Yeah. We're not open. Um, right. Well, I mean, some of the hallmark, so some of the hallmarks of mentalizing are, um, perspective taking, yep. uh, curiosity, um, the unknowing, being uncomfortable with the uncertainty mm-hmm. and be willing to explore it in the moment. And, uh, it's easy. It's much easier to do when things are calm and nice and pleasant. It's much harder to do when your child just mouthed off of you, <laughs> you know, absolutely. And, you, and, not, and then it's like exploring or your sass. triggers, right? Yeah. The sass, <laughs> but some things we talk a lot about triggers with parents is some things bother you. Like for instance, kids lying to me doesn't really irritate me as much as it does. Some parents, some parents, it's a huge trigger. Lying, yes, yes. Right. Or it just depends. And so where do those triggers come from? Why am I not personally offended by your the child's lie, but you are, right. it's fascinating to think about, but it's also necessary uh, to fully mentalize, to not sort of overreact or react in the moment. So this is actually a way to, which I'm really discovering the more and more I deliver the training and the intervention is that parents have, are telling me it's a way to help them emotionally regulate themselves, which I find fascinating because that is the hardest thing to do. And we always say, take 10 breaths and breathe, but there's a cognitive element in there too. Yeah. There's, there's more to it. If you personally feel offended or, or threatened, then uh, you're not going to take time to breathe. You're going to go on the defensive. You're going to protect yourself or or what have you. A lot of this is unconscious, but some of it you can control. Well, I love that because it, it brings in the intersection, the intersection of the biology and unconscious forces and then cognition and how they all interplay because it might be, it might be that without the breath, we aren't able to catch the curiosity you know, true. But mm-hmm. you're right that even if we're sitting there breathing, but we stay in the exact same State cognitive space, mm-hmm. the breathing isn't going to do it. That's right. Because um, you pause. know that That's you're right. being threatened. That's right. And you were going to respond appropriately. So that the breathing, in a sense, gives a chance for reflection to begin to ease back in. And again, that happens typically when we feel a little safer. But also, what I love about what you're doing, Tina, and is that. Uh, expanding that capacity. So it's not just when I'm calm, I can do it, but we want to grow it in people so that even when you're not calm, you can kind of work your way back to it. And that was the question, because to be honest, I mean, obviously, since I'm a researcher, I'm really curious about how things work, but also I am a clinician and I love teaching and I'm developing these interventions. So I'm with the parents and I'm in the classroom and and I'm experimenting with these different methods of, of what really works at home because I'm not there with you. I can't go home with you. I don't really know what's happening. So what I've learned at least so far is that I don't know for sure, but the, the data is very promising of this idea that practicing while you're calm, while you're in the classroom in a safe place with perhaps other people that understand you, 
or not. But so far, that's how I'm doing it, right? These are with a group situation, small groups, 10 to 15 parents. They're all in the same boat, essentially. And they're practicing and then they're reporting that they're going home and in the middle of a difficult moment, they're able to do this when they weren't able to do it before. And that to me is surprising. I'm hoping it sticks, but it tells me something that perhaps it doesn't, they don't even have to practice in a difficult moment, but by just practicing sort of like meditation, by changing the brain or changing the way that we think about things that you can't help, but then it changes you. It changes you, perhaps. That's I love that. You know that the mind changes the brain, and the brain changes the mind. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. just this interplay. Yeah. So I have this um, story of a, a parent um, a number of years ago who went through the intervention, and she was a longtime foster parent. She um, fostered teens and often difficult teens. And this was after this was a, a three class. We had three classes that we did, and this was after the second class. And she said that something happened. And so she told me this story about she has this teenager who is 17 and has been quite difficult, lots of behavior problems. And she was about to ask her to leave the home because what was happening was she was going to school and fighting and getting suspended. And then the parent would have to take off work. And it was just wreaking havoc. And the parent was telling me, the mom, she was like, look, you know, this child makes me angry. And this child <laughs> would come. So every time this happened, the general thing was she'd come home, they'd have an argument about it, she'd get a consequence. You can imagine, you know, how this would go down. Um, and so she was telling me, so I got the call from the principal that it's suspended again. I was so angry. The child came home. She's like, but something changed in me. I'm like, well, what happened? And she's like, well, I was still angry, but I was really for the, for the first time, really curious about what was going on inside of her. And it's not that she wasn't curious at other times, but what I mean is that she was curious during a volatile, angry moment. And that was fascinating to me. So she said, I was very curious. And I told her, I said, this is what the mom was reporting to me. She said, I said to my child, I'm angry and, and we need to talk about stuff. But more than that, I'm really concerned about you. And I'm really curious What's going inside on inside your mind? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's going on for you? You're so angry. I don't understand. And she said, for the first time, the child just melted in front of her and all the anger disappeared. And she said, I'm not even angry, mom. I'm actually really, really sad. And then she told her she had a plan to kill herself. And this foster mom told me she doesn't think she would have ever discovered this plan or any of this stuff if she hadn't talk to her in that way. It hadn't been curious and really, and that I get goosebumps just thinking about it today. And she was genuinely thankful that she has now had a shift in her mind, mindset. She's thinking differently about herself, about her child. So even though she was angry, just by sort of thinking about things differently and maybe practicing in class, she was able to shift her viewpoint in the moment in a very critical moment for this child. That's an incredible story. Yeah. I can, I really, it just resonates as so true. And I know in my own parenting moments, <laughs> when I've been able to make that shift, um, you know, I have a, some adolescents and <laughs> yes, you do <laughs> you have a couple of them. <laughs> and, um, you know, sometimes what they're putting out to the world isn't mm. really what's going on, but it's so easy to just be responsive to just that. Of course. And, you know, these are great, great kids. 
uh, but but it's the softening. There really is, I mean, it even feels different when you make the shift that we're not, I'm going to get out of this power struggle with you. And uh, it's just, it, it physically feels different. It does. And they, I think, can feel it. And then now you have soft, soft instead yeah. of hard, hard. And um, we don't have to worry about all the other stuff for a moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you think about mirror neurons, any of those things I'm sure yes. you've talked about before, it, it's it's a mutual process. Right. And so these parents report to me that they themselves are being regulated by being able to do this with their child, which mm-hmm. I find really interesting. And as I like to say that it just it's a, gr- a great point you said about behavior, because especially the older they get, the more we tend to focus on behavior and um, what they're saying, especially when it's negative. And there's always something behind the behavior mm-hmm. and, and being that sort of emotional detective, as I like to say, you know, going I, a little deeper. I love that. You know, there's this idea of the symptom is a solution. Mm-hmm. And so that just, again, immediately, if you could imagine a little light bulb going on over your mind, that just that thought even is like, what's the solution for? Yeah. Um, like not making a choice. Well, that's a solution. Or, you know, whatever the behavior is that you're having, you're struggling with, like if you just begin to click it that way versus the other, right? like you've opened up this, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about taking a pause and this auto-regulation and and things like that. But um, I love this piece because it's a very specific what to do. What to do. Instead of all this what not to do and how things are screwed up. Yes. Yes. And And there's this sort of, you know... Uh, yes, foster, parenting traumatized children, foster parenting is is a unique thing, but it's also just parenting. You know, a lot of it is simply how to deal with behavior problems and how to deal with uh, tantrums and a lot of things that most a lot of parents want to know how to deal with. And as I like to say, it's like I, these are sort of ways to increase your own toolbox, your skill level, so that you can deal with issues individually. Because I can't tell you what to do; you have to figure that out on your own. But everybody wants to feel better about their relationship. They want something that reaches deeper. Um, They just don't know how to do it. That's just great. You know? So, and in just a moment, if there's anything more specific too that you would like to give uh, suggestions or ways to facilitate Mm. it. Yes. Um, But just to clarify for everybody how cool this is, that part of what uh, Tina is working on is being able to deliver these kind of interventions in these like power shots <laughs> um, <Right>. and this and a <laughs> small amount of time without therapy, mm-hmm. without any clinical intervention, um, but with care and kindness and truth uh, and be able to really make, hopefully what we're hoping for is real change within the parent that then translates uh, into the family. Yeah. And so, so far the intervention is um, uh, roughly eight hours, you know, uh, broken up into a couple classes and uh, over a several weeks, so they have time to practice and process. Uh, but I will tell you that I, I've had a, I'm working with a number of researchers and a lot of interest in, in translating it into different. I mean, it's applicable to any parent, really. So right now, I'm working with a couple of researchers at Wayne State University. They have they do a lot in this area, and we want to adapt it for military moms when they're when they're when the parents deployed, uh, substance abusing moms, parents. You know, it could be mom or dad, but it, it, there's a lot of sort of complementary. It could be used in conjunction with therapy or hopefully can it make a difference even on its own, especially with relatively well-functioning parents, you know, I'm sure the more extreme. Um, So, I mean, just in terms of things you could do at home, uh, I think it's 
sort of there's uh, starting to use questions uh, for your, for yourself and your parents. I mean, so for yourself and your children. So starting to think about, like, be curious about why they did what they did. What's behind their behavior? What are the emotions behind their behavior? What were they thinking when they said that? What were they feeling? Yeah, when and, they and said it doesn't that? sound like. What were you thinking? No, no, you're not saying it. You're actually doing it. You know, you're doing – what I like to say is if in the moment you may not be able to do it. So later on when you have a calm moment, this is when you think about it. So it's not too late. It's not – no. So you think about it later and you say, hey, what was he really thinking or feeling when he did all that? Why did I react that way? Why, why was that a trigger for me? Well, am I just am – I, am I cranky? Am I sleepy? Am I hangry? You know, what's going on with me and why am I doing this? So it's just being curious and starting that process. But even in the moment, if you're able to, when you're in a difficult place with a child, being able to sort of stop and think and say, hey – you know, we're, I'm really, I, I know, you know, if, a great example is if they're misbehaving and they're having a moment where, you know, they're, they're really angry. They, you know, they have to go to school. They're resisting. They're having a whole tantrum or sort of a little tantrum or whatever. And you're able to just kind of just stop for the moment and really attune to them and connect with them on their eye level and say, you know, I see you really angry and, and I'm really curious about that. I'm really, I want to know more. I want to know more, you know, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Is there any way I can help right now? We still have to go to school, but is there any way that I can help you feel better? You know, it's just, that's the most basic sense of everybody wants to feel known. We want to feel somebody's thinking about us. We want to think somebody's really curious about us and invested in us. And these are not always the way we talk to children and it can make a huge difference. I've seen it time and t- time and again of taking a tantrum down a whole level by simply connecting with the powerful emotion in the moment, acknowledging it and really showing an effort to mentalize them as that. But in that moment, you have to be able to regulate yourself and that's the difficult part. And so this is where I find parents really struggling, which makes a lot of sense. They're really angry. But like this woman said, she was angry, but she had sort of been already thinking about it before the child came home from school. So she was angry she was kind of probably rehearsing the things she was going to say to her when she came home. But then all this sort of came back to her from the classroom. And she was like, okay, I'm still angry. That's not going away. But I've opened my mind enough. I've been able to regulate enough to see there's other things going on here. It's not just this child acting out and misbehaving and trying to get kicked out of the home or all the different things I think are going on. There's something else there. And I just don't know what it is. That's great. That is great. So I particularly like what you're saying about being able to get that, get those wheels spinning away from the child mm-hmm. so that you're more primed when you're with them to think in that way, even if you're a little dysregulated. Yeah. You know, another technique um, uh, that, uh, you know, that I understand or that I have recommended is even when you have toddlers, little bitty ones mm. that aren't speaking but their learning language that that it's recommended to just mentalize out loud, yes. you know, instead of just book or whatever, yes. you know, like I'm, I'm opening the refrigerator. I'm thinking about what to have, for, you know what I mean? And that you just sort of narrate what you're thinking and your perspective and, and shifts. And, um, we could do this or we could do that. And I'm, I'm tired from work, so I'm not going to cook, you know, like, and that you yes. just say out loud what is just crossing your mind 
and that that is a way to promote mentalizing. Well, it's interesting you say that because that's one of the first things they discovered with uh, parents and infants, the secure parents were actually mentalizing their infant. And what that meant was they were, they were, you know, as they're talking and cuddling and diapering their infant, they were saying things to them like, oh, I wonder what you're thinking right now. Or did you like that? Your face doesn't look like you like that, but maybe you did. And they're really curious because they don't have words. So no idea what's going on inside that infant, but they're open and they're curious as opposed to some parents, which especially the more challenged parents, which you could watch and they felt like their that the the baby, for instance, if the baby was angry, was angry at them and mm. was specifically doing this to them, giving a revenge poop or something like that. Right. You know, which is it, it, that's a little more obvious. We can see that as being wow, that's a bit of a leap. You know, yeah, that is a bit of a leap. But we do it with older kids all the time, and we don't see it as a leap. That's right. And that's why I like to work on those. It's more obvious uh, with the the babies. It's a little easier to see, but um, it's harder to see with older children. Well, this is so exciting, and the application of this, like you said, is so wide, and so. yet the research is um, new. And It is new. So there's so much still to learn. But for those listeners who would be interested in reaching out to you, and uh, first of all, in the show notes, we're going to have plenty, plenty, as we always do, of resources and more information on this. Sure. Um, and maybe some articles. Absolutely. And... Um, you know, give you more data because we, we can always dive deeper with Therapist and Uncensored. But also if they want to reach out to you directly, can you share? Yes, please. Uh, I have a, a website that has a lot of general information about the interventions called Family Minds. And uh, if you go to the website, www.familyminds.org, you can find information about the intervention and what mentalizing is. There's some little videos with Fonagy on it and just some real basic stuff, which is nice. Uh, you can reach me at tina.adkins, that's A-D as in David, K-I-N-S at gmail.com. Um, and then if you're interested in any of the London stuff, I would just recommend going to the Anna Freud Center's website, annafreudcenter.org, um, or just Google it, to be honest. That's the best way to get there because they spell their words different, like centers with R-E, mm-hmm. not E-R. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so you can explore a little deeper uh, there as well and, and read more about the research and clinical interventions and things like that. So That's great. And for those of you following, we've been talking about uh, doing a course and, you know, one of the metacognition is another way of saying this. Mm-hmm. It's one of the three pillars um, for adults when we treat adults what we want to do to promote earned security. And we love earned security around here. That's our (laughs) favorite thing where we want t-shirts and, you know, um, so this is a really, really important concept that we're getting to do. Yeah. So it'd really be great to figure out if even increasing mentalizing skills then changes your own, uh, in, you know, security. Yeah. It would be really fascinating to figure that out eventually. Um, love it, love it, love it. And I had, uh, mentioned this to Tina before we got on, but when there's a whole organization that was developed just out of this, a little footnote that, um, where Fonagy said that in six weeks that low income mothers can be taught the skill. So we don't have to be in therapy for years and years and years Mm -hmm. and years, or even in a secure relationship necessarily. Uh, but if you notice those are mentalizing is some of the things that happen in these secure relationships that ends up converting us. But we, this is a much more direct specific intervention so we can do it faster, which we always want to do, right? It's like one significant skill. Okay, great. Yeah. And, and actually the mentalizing based therapies are meant to be short term as well. And so those are kind of cool, but fast and furious. Great. So thanks for listening. Uh, if you would like to hear more, like I said, check out the show notes and please join our 
email list. Uh, you can find that at therapistuncensored.com. And absolutely subscribe to your favorite podcast player. And if you haven't yet, rate us and review. That's always super helpful. And last suggestion, not to throw too many at you, but if you want to get a little more information about all of this, um, Tina is on our Therapist Uncensored online community. Mm -hmm. She's one of the members. And we might be doing some cool stuff together live uh, to get more of this out there and take questions and everything. So keep your questions coming and your feedback and your comments. Uh, We're super open. And we can use those, uh, if we are able to make this work, to be able to do something on the Facebook page and go live and um, interact more directly. And also, I'm actually a researcher at University of Texas. I don't know if we mentioned that. So I'm in the School of Social Work. And so that's where I have a page in there somewhere as well. So (laughs) That's awesome. Good, good, good. Okay, because our listeners often are very smart and intelligent about these things and want to know more. So uh, (laughs) there you go. Hope that uh, we've done a good job of delivering that. And thank you very much for listening. Uh, Again, share, share this freely, and we will see you around the bend. Welcome to Ask a Therapist. Our question today is from Philip from London. He asks, firstly, I sometimes find myself ranting and raving whilst feeling the energy could be used more productively. Do you have any tips on how to channel aggression and anger into positive outcomes? Secondly, I'm a big supporter of the changes through earned attachment through psychotherapy that psychotherapy can bring. However, is there ever a role for medication and mental health beyond being a temporary sticking plaster? I love that term, don't y'all? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Are there some biological issues that cannot be fully resolved by therapy alone? So thank you for these uh, questions. What do you guys think? Well, one thing that came to mind about the ranting and raving, I was thinking about Titnak Khan, and he had written a whole book on anger. And he uses the analogy of a house for your body. And when you are ranting and raving, your house is on fire. And his analogy is that you don't chase the arsonist down the street. You stay home control the fire, and make sure it keeps your house warm, but it doesn't burn it down. And so I think the question is wonderful because we don't want people to tamp out their anger because anger really makes you stand up for yourself, put a boundary in place. But at some point, it, it doesn't serve you well to get totally dysregulated over whatever the issue is or the transgression. What do you think, Anne? I love it. Exactly what you're saying is that compassion for the ranting and raving, we all do it. And there's typically related to some perceived um, uh, injury or something that has happened to us. It's a a perception of that. And there's the fire. And do you chase the arsonist, the one that you think has created that, that void for you? And it's so easy to do that and get distracted. And the question's beautiful because he's saying, that's not helping me. I keep doing that. And so how do you not chase the arsonist and stay towards your house is I think the next step to that. And part of it is also having self-compassion for yourself that people rage and understand that's so informative, but then turning to an area of, of reflection. What I didn't read actually was he said, how do you channel it into positive social change? And, of course, here in the United States, it makes me think immediately of some of our political crises that we're in. And there's a lot of ranting and raving and fist shaking happening here. 
and um, and how do we quell that where that we're not just burning angry energy into the universe, but that we're channeling it, like you said, for uh, something productive socially. Uh, and, and that's an important piece. Great. And one of the one of the how tos when we mentioned the reflective is what has happened that's making me so enraged that I want to go on and on. Well, usually we feel helpless and we feel trapped. And so getting control of what is making me helpless and what is making me feel trapped and harnessing that and saying, what is the thing that I can take in a step of positivity towards it? And it isn't just think positive thoughts because we're in the middle of a rage and we're, we, we can't just shift. But one of the things we can do is to develop in our mind, what is an action step that I can take, but just the nature of moving that into action helps release us of our feeling of being trapped and helpless. So the idea of developing a plan or even where do I want to be, imagining where I want to end up in this rage, and then coming back with a plan right then that's already going to cool your jets. That's right. So it's like uh, getting our think- thinking reengaged so that we're not just full of affect and uh, that our lid is blown. Um, and I, I just keep having this visual image of Philip with your hand on your heart, that particularly if you're ranting and rave, enraging, that, that you can take a breath and put your hand on your heart and just take a pause. Um, and that in and of itself gives your body a chance to re-engage your thinking rather than just your affect so that you can begin to engage whatever the threat is or whatever the trapped, as you're saying, Anne, whatever the um, thing coming at you is in a more efficient manner so that you can um, have more choices about what you're going to do about this uh, obstacle coming at you. So what about the medication? What are y'all's thoughts about that? Well, I think it's a great question because although therapy is wonderful, if someone is in a state that they cannot do therapy, medication is absolutely required. And for certain for certain diagnoses, I think it's a mistake to take medicine off the table. A great example would be if somebody that is feeling too low or too depressed to engage in it or too hostile or too activated to be able to calm down or too anxious. And yes, there are biological factors that are involved that we shouldn't um, rule out as only weakness. We like to align if somebody's diabetic, there's actually chemical structures in the in their body that they need help in their synapses. And that's the same way with our brains in our bodies, there is times when we really do have low serotonin or we have things that we really need to help activate it in our body. Yes, I'll even say it's stronger. If you're in a 12-step program and your sponsor tells you to get off your medication that's helping you, you should run from your sponsor. So um, I have seen people really go off the rails trying to work a really good program and getting really bad psychiatric advice from people that aren't in the field of psychiatry. So there. (laughs) Absolutely. And I'll say another thing. I've seen people go on meds for a period of time where they've never been able to really know what it's like to have a certain experience of lowered anxiety or increased energy because their whole life has been that way. They go on meds and they can see the world. It's like taking off the blue glasses 
And you can, don't think if you go on medication, it's a sentence for life. You can go on medication, and I've seen people be able to go on for a period of time and then be able to get off the medication and go, and because they see it differently, they're engaging differently. Awesome. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, And listeners, please keep the questions coming as you send them. Let us know where you're sending them from so we can thank you. And any comments or questions, we always want to hear from our listeners. All right, we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Cady Alwell, and Sue Marriott. Becky Mandeville edits this podcast and provides technical support.